Thank you for joining us today. And I'm wondering, do you ever not want to do what you know you ought to do? Like, you know you should do it. And it's the best thing for you, but you just don't want to. Like, for example, you're watching a show and that show goes off. And you know, and I know that if we go to bed, we will feel better in the morning. We'll be less cranky. We'll have a better attitude, et cetera, et cetera. And yet while we're trying to make that decision, what happens? The show restarts because the makers of these things know how to just draw us in. And I lack the self-control to pick up the remote and press stop. And I just watch another show. And when that show ends, I've got the same decision and I often make the wrong decision again. And the next morning, I don't feel as good because I watched too many shows. Any, anybody with me on that? I've also found that there's a direct correlation between my want to and my circumstances. Like when things are going really well and stress is really low, my want to is high. When things aren't going as well and stress has increased, my want to takes a nosedive. In addition, I found in my own life, I don't know if this is true for you, but it's way easier for me to make healthy choices earlier in the day than it is later. And Craig Rochelle on his leadership podcast talks about a thing called decision fatigue. That as we make decisions throughout the day, we get tired. And as a result of that, we make worse decisions later in the day because of decision fatigue. I, I live that. Like it's way easier for me to choose the healthy thing at breakfast or lunch, but then we put the kids to bed and it's late and I'm tired and I find myself staring at the fridge or the cabinets going, what sugary thing can I eat? And how much of that sugary thing can I eat and not feel absolutely terrible in the morning? I don't know if anybody is with me, but I struggle to do what I know I ought to do. Now, what happens when this bleeds over into our relationship with Jesus. And we ought to worship Jesus, but we just don't want to. Now, for those of you who don't follow Jesus, thank you for joining us. And I know you're absolutely shocked to know that there are times that we don't want to worship Jesus. No, you're not shocked. You're just wondering how do we deal with it? Because <laughs> we all face this. So first of all, to understand this question, we have to go, well, what is worship? Worship is our response to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed by the things we say and the way we live. So worship is a response. It's expressed with our words and actions. But what happens when we don't want to respond to God? And what are some examples of this response? Like, I know I should read my Bible, but I don't want to. I know I should pray, but I don't want to. I know I should sing, but I don't want to. I know that I should go to community group and engage with people, but I don't want to. I know that I should serve. I don't want to. I know that I should give. I don't want to. The list goes on and on. There are times that we know that we ought to worship Jesus, but we just don't want to. So what do we do? We just fake it till we make it. Thank you for joining us for Public Church. We will see you back next week. No! We do that. That's not what we should do. That goes against the authenticity that Jesus requires. So... How do we do what we ought to do, but we don't want to do? And specifically today, we're talking about how do we worship Jesus when we just don't want to worship Jesus? And have this conversation. We're going to be in Psalm 103. If you want to join me in your Bible or Bible app, online family, you've probably noticed by now this is a little bit different. 
than just being a part of our normal gathering. And we're doing this for two reasons. One, we wanted to give you something special for this holiday, and we wanted to honor the majority of our broadcast team by giving them this holiday weekend off and, and letting them have some more time with our family. So I'm glad we can have this, this special moment together. And as we think about Psalm 103, I really, really like it because Psalm 103 assumes that there are times that we don't want to worship. Isn't that comforting? Like if you don't follow Jesus, isn't it comforting to know that the Bible is so real that assumes there's times that we don't want to worship God? Also, Psalm 103 is gonna tell us to talk to ourselves. I kinda like that. So let's start reading and see what I mean. Psalm 103 verse one says, "'Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name.'" David is the psalmist, the greatest king in all of Israel's history and a worship leader. And what David is doing is he is talking to himself. Like, there's a lot of reasons I like this psalm, but one reason is because it gives me permission to talk to myself. I think it kind of gives me permission to do that aloud. Anybody else talk to yourself aloud? It's fine until somebody else overhears you and like, who are you talking to? Uh, Nope, nobody, fine, you know. This psalm though even gives us permission to argue with ourselves. Because when we don't want to do what we ought to do, we got to talk to ourselves. So David's talking to himself and he's talking to his soul. He says, praise the Lord, my soul. In other words, all my inmost being. What is our soul? Or if your translation says heart, it means the essence of who we are. He's having a conversation saying, soul, we got to talk. There's some things we need to do. So if we're going to talk to ourselves, what do we say? Well, the first thing that David does is he reminds himself who God is. If we go back to our definition of worship, worship is our response to God for who he is. That's where it starts. So if you look at verse one, he says, praise his holy name. In other words, we don't want to worship. The first thing we do is we got to remember who God is, that God is holy. That word means that he is set apart, that he's unique, that he's distinct. He's in a class of his own, that he is unrivaled, that nothing in all of creation even begins to compare to God. That's who we are responding to, that he's greater than feelings. He's greater than emotions. Those are real, but he is greater. And so we raise our eyes above the circumstances we're in and we look to God. Because our circumstances, they're going to change. And sometimes our circumstances will make us want to worship. And sometimes our circumstances will make us want to do anything but worship. So we have to look above them and look to the God who never changes, even though our circumstances constantly will. So he starts by saying, remember, he is holy. Let's look to him. And then in verse two, he says, praise the Lord, my soul. In other words, come on, soul, get it together. Praise the Lord and forget not all his benefits. How easy is it for us to forget all that God has done? See, worship, our response to God for who he is and what he has done. It's so easy for us to get distracted, for us to have all these things going on in our lives, and we don't take time to pause and remember what he's done. So I'd like to lead us through today what I think my soul even needs is to take some time and let's just remember his benefits. Let's remember what he's done. So it says in verse three that he's the one who forgives all your sins. Now we can just gloss over this and keep going. 
And I think sometimes the reason we don't feel the magnitude of the first part of verse three is because we don't know the depth of our sin. See, in Isaiah 64, verse six, here's what the prophet Isaiah writes. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel like a leaf and the wind and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. I struggle with this verse because a lot of times I think I'm doing all right. But this verse brings me back to reality and tells me, no, the right things I do, the good things I do, apart from God, that's just filthy, nasty, dirty, smelly, muddy rags. This reminds me who I really am apart from God. This isn't just an Old Testament concept. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul, pivotal leader in the early church, he wrote this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we were to do a real in-depth study into the original language, I'm like, what does the word all mean in Greek? Guess what it means in Greek? All, you, me, your neighbor, your kids, your future kids, everybody ever has sinned. God has a standard, we fall short. Like all of us have missed the mark. That's what sin means. All of us have not met God's standard and all of us have harmed someone made in the image of God. That's sin. All of us, we can't run away from this. And our sin is a disease and a problem. It separates us from God. It traps us. And then most of us, if we're honest, we know what it's like to be trapped by sin. Even if you don't want to have a relationship with God, you know what it's like to be held in prison by your own sin and to not be able to break out of that prison. But God, because the rest of this says, not only have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. I said, we're prisoners to sin. Well, redemption means to buy back out of slavery, that Jesus bought us back out of our slavery to sin. Verse 25 says, God presented Christ, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In other words, Jesus, by dying, by shedding his blood, he paid the penalty for our sins. He faced the wrath of God, so we do not have to face the wrath of God. In fact, that's what it says. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This matters because we want God to overlook our sins, but to punish everyone else for their sins, don't we? Like we're okay if God forgives our injustice, but we definitely want him to be just towards other people. And what this says is that God can forgive us and forgive others. He can be just, he can bring the justice that we actually crave at a soul level, if we're honest. And he can be the justifier, he can be the forgiver of our sins because of Jesus. And I love that Romans 3 tells us how Psalm 103 is possible. Because in Psalm 103, it says he forgives all your sins. How does he do that? Because David was looking forward to Jesus. 
This idea forgives all our sins. It is screaming the name of Jesus. And we got to know what this word forgives means. Forgives, it's not just talking about when you and I forgive a friend or a family member. That can be really difficult, but it's actually an even higher level of forgiveness. It's actually talking about when a king pardons a subject. Like when someone stands before a king and they deserve imprisonment, really when they deserve the death penalty. And that king says, nope, you are pardoned. You are forgiven. Jesus is holy. He is the king of all the universe. Yet he stands before us. And because of his death and his resurrection, he says, you may be pardoned because he died in our place. That's a benefit. I mean, that's some good news. If we can take some time to remember that, you know what's going to happen? Worship is going to overflow. We're going to want to respond through getting in the word and prayer and singing and giving and serving and being in community because we're remembering what he's done. But then it goes on. It doesn't just talk about our sins. It says he heals all your diseases to which I say, no, he doesn't. You don't talk back to the Bible. (laughs) I do. I have interactions when I'm reading the word. Like he heals all your diseases. No, let me tell you about this person he didn't heal. Let me tell you about this person he hasn't healed. Let me tell you about this person that we prayed for his healing and he died and he wasn't healed. God, do you really heal all your diseases, all our diseases? And what David is saying here is he's not promising that God's going to heal all our diseases on this side of eternity. He's pointing us to the fact that he can. We need to understand that he can, even if he hasn't. That he can, even if he doesn't. And one of those stories I'm talking about is a story of my wife praying for her dad's healing as Whitney and her family cried out to that. And then when he wasn't healed on earth, I remember talking to her about like, okay, so the healing didn't come. And she taught me, oh yes, the healing did come. He is healed. He is restored and he is with Jesus. The healing just didn't come the way we wanted it to. So what this verse is telling us is that he alone has the power to heal. And one day, one day, Jesus is going to return and he's going to restore all things and he's going to heal everything. So we ask him to heal now and we trust him when he chooses to heal later. That he is the one who heals all our diseases. But interestingly enough, in verse four, it says that it goes from healing diseases to saying, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And maybe like me, you're like, where do we go from healing to the pit? It's because the image of him healing, it's not just physical, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's mental, and it's physical. It's that when we're in the pit of life, God and only God has the power to reach down into that pit and to pull us out of it. We don't know where the rope is. We can't climb out ourselves, but the rope is his hand reaching down, pulling us out of the muck. And what it says is that he crowns That word could also mean he surrounds. He crowns and surrounds us with love and compassion. He satisfies our soul level desires with good things, with himself. And then he renews us. That our youth is renewed. It's like we're younger than we actually are because he refreshes us at a soul level, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. This is the kind of healing that God offers us. So we don't forget his benefits. Remember his benefits and we worship him because of it. And then at this point, 
This psalm transitions from just thinking about what he does individually to thinking about what he does for the community because it's bigger than us. And so it says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. For the global persecuted church, God is working on their behalf. For all of those who right now are suffering under the heavy weight of injustice, God is working on their behalf. Now again, we have to remember, God is outside of time. He might bring the justice He may not bring the righteousness this verse speaks about in our timing on this side of eternity, but one day he is. King Jesus, he's coming back. He's gonna restore all things. He's gonna establish his justice and his righteousness, and he's gonna reign forever. But in the middle, in the muck, we can know this verse tells us he is working. Man, that's some good news. If you feel like he's not working, you can remember that he is. And how do we know that? Because he's worked in the past. Verse seven says, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. In in Exodus 34, God just declares like, Moses, here's who I am. And what this is saying is that he not only declared who he was, but he also proved who he was. That his deeds to the people of Israel, he's telling the people of Israel to look back at their history and see how God has worked, even when he looked like he wasn't working. He's telling us to look at the history of the Bible, to look at the history of others' lives, to look at our own history and see that he was working even when it looked like he wasn't. And who is this God who is working? He is the Lord and he is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, sometimes we may struggle with the wrath of God. Even though, again, I've established we want his justice. We just don't want his justice when we don't want it and we don't want it for us and we have our own peculiarities when we want it and we don't want it because we don't understand his justice. Anyway, that's a talk for another day. But something Jackie Hill Perry said in a book that I loved is she said, God's love is so great that his wrath often offends us. Think about that for a moment. God's love is so great and so pervasive that when he does act justly, sometimes we're offended. Look, if he's gonna be God, he has to be just. His wrath is a part of the equation. Remember, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. So we don't have to go through that. If we endure it, that's our fault because we rejected Jesus. So he is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers on earth, says God is basically waiting. He's waiting to return so more people would repent. Like that's his heart. If if you're wondering, does God love you? Yes, he loves you so much that he's given you today. And if you live tomorrow, he's given you tomorrow. Like every day is a gift where he is being patient. He's slow to anger, even though we deserve his anger and wrath because he's love. This is who God is. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Isn't this good news? Nor he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He doesn't have to because Jesus took what our sins deserve. Come on. And it says this, man, please, if you don't get anything else, verse 11 and 12 could be a life changer for all of us. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Again, this is talking about a king. 
And here's what a king does. Instead of a king handing down the verdict on us and letting us feel the weight of our transgressions, he removes them from us. Did you catch that? How far does he remove them? The psalmist basically says in an Old Testament ancient way, to infinity and beyond. (laughs) Infinity. That your sin and that my sin is removed in infinity's distance from us. In other words, God's not sitting there waiting on the perfect moment to bring up what you did in seventh grade. He's not waiting on the perfect moment to bring up what you did last night. He's not waiting on the perfect moment to bring up what I did last week. And then when the moment comes, boom, he's going to smash us with that and he's going to win the argument. Now, sometimes we do that in our marriages. We do that in our friendships. We shouldn't do that. It's not God-like. That's not who he is. Instead, he takes all that junk and he sets them aside. Here's how the message paraphrase says it. He doesn't endlessly nag and scold nor hold grudges forever. This is the forgiveness. This is the love of our God. And it's all made possible because of Jesus. And so verse 13, he says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And this is another part where some of us might have some pushback. Now, you may be watching this a year from now, listening to this podcast two years from now, but this is recorded and released on Thanksgiving weekend when some of you have had to spend time with a dad that you don't like. And some of you had to spend time with a dad that may not like you. And others of you, you may have just been wanting your dad to be there, but he's absent. So when you read verses like this that talks about God as our father, you're just like, oh, oh, oh. We, we got to remember, just a gentle reminder, the pain is real. And know that in the midst of your very real pain, that when the Bible speaks about God as our Father, He is not the personification of our earthly Father. He is the culmination of all we've ever wanted in a Father. How do we know He's good? Because look what He does. As a good, perfect, to use a verb from verse, or an adjective from verse 1, as a holy Father, He has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Why does he have compassion? For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust. How does he know how we're formed? Because he's our creator. We're all made in his image. And then if you really dig in to the Hebrew here, what this is saying is he not only knows how we're formed, he knows our intent. That's a scary thought. That God knows our motives. And yet the verse before says he chooses to have compassion on us anyway. I may not get this Tim Keller quote exactly right. Tim Keller said something like, God sees us to the bottom and yet he loves us to the top. Man, isn't that good news? He knows when we are faking it. He knows when our motives are terrible. And he has compassion anyway. He knows we're but dust. It says in verse 15, the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers no more. We won't last. We're temporary creatures. Verse 17 says, but from everlasting to everlasting 
is the Lord's love is with those who fear him. Read that one more time because I misspoke. I can read, I think. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. Here's the thing. We won't last his love will. We don't endure. His love endures forever. That love we've been talking about, it endures forever. And it says his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Pause. If we're a parent, here's what this is saying, that our faith in Jesus, our following Jesus can leave a generational blessing to our kids and our children's children. Man, that's good. It doesn't mean that they're just automatically going to be Jesus followers. No, they have to make that decision for themselves, but we can set them up and pave the way for them to make that decision and invite them to make that decision by our lifestyle and by modeling what it means to follow Jesus. And then it says this, it's conditional. Hmm. It says, it's mentioned those who fear him a few times. It says those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. So, so, how do we get into this covenant relationship where we experience his unfailing love? We enter through Jesus. So what God wants us to do, what he requires us to do to have a relationship with him is to surrender, to surrender to Jesus. Say, Jesus, you are already the king of the cosmos. Jesus, will you be the king of my heart? That we repent. That means a change in mind that results in a change of lifestyle. We stop being the king of our own lives and we let him be the king because he's already ruling the cosmos. Let's let him rule our lives. And that's what changes us. We don't change ourselves. Jesus changes everything because he died and rose again. He changes us. So today, do you want to repent and follow Jesus? And if you do, it's just a matter of praying a simple prayer, just telling him that. There's no magic words. Just let him know, Jesus, you died, you rose again. I can't fix myself. I can't get myself out of this pit we're talking about. I can't forgive myself. I can't heal myself. Jesus, you can. So Jesus, would you do what only you can do? I want you to be my king. And you know what comes out of that? Lifestyle of obedience. Not perfection, progression, and obedience. Because the Holy Spirit of God moves into us and gives us both the ability and the desire to do what pleases God. So the Holy Spirit increases our want to so we can do what we ought to do. Come on, somebody. We have some help in this when we follow Jesus. And then it says in verse 19, just to make sure we know who we're invited to surrender to, it says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. He's reigning over the entire universe. And verse 20 says, so praise the Lord, you as angels. Pause. What's happened is it started personal, then it went community. Now it's going universal. It's going even in the supernatural because it's saying, praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. In other words, in the entire universe, he reigns and he deserves worship. So send every being from our soul to the angels and everything in between. Let's worship God. And the psalm ends where it begins, talking to himself. So he says, come on, praise the Lord, my soul. So in summary, how do we worship when we don't want to? Here's what we do. When I don't want to worship, I recenter on the gospel. I would encourage you to write that down. This is what this psalm is teaching us. This psalm 
is pointing us to the gospel. Think about how many times we've talked about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And that's the gospel, the good news that Jesus came. He died. He rose again. So, so again, just internalize this. Receive this. When I don't want to worship, I recenter on the gospel. I don't fake it till I make it. I don't try to grit it out of myself and make myself do it. No, no. I just take some time. And I'm going to remember who he is. I'm not going to forget his benefits. I'm going to remember all his benefits. Remember what he's done. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do. So the way we're going to end our time, so I just want to invite you when this broadcast ends, when this podcast ends, to take some time and take communion. Now, I know you might be driving, you might be on a run. It, it may not be immediate. But to carve out some time later in the day, the next day, sometime this week, and just take communion. Because what communion does is it re-centers us on the gospel. When we take the bread, we're reminded that Jesus, that he died. He gave his whole body. He didn't hold anything back. And as he was bruised and beaten for us, he was taking on the wrath of God. When we take the cup, we're reminded that he spilled his blood for us. And through the shedding of his blood, we can be forgiven of our sins. You know, genetically, physically, life flows from the blood and spiritually, our life flows from the blood of Jesus. And just before you take communion, I just encourage and challenge you to consider, am I right with God? Am I right with God's people? Because communion is for Jesus followers. And if you don't follow Jesus, that's not to exclude you. It's to say the first step isn't to take communion. The first step is to repent, to surrender, to follow Jesus. And then once you do that, you can take communion as a Jesus follower. And we'd love to help you do that. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Jesus, to repent, to surrender, then just email us, prayer at publicchurch.com. We'd love to have that conversation with you. And for those of us who follow Jesus, don't just think, man, did I repent one time, but is there anything I need to repent of right now? Am I right with God currently? And maybe you need to repent first. Maybe I need to repent first. And then am I right with God's people? Because Jesus came both to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to each other. And so maybe between now and whenever you take communion, it may require a phone call, a lunch meeting, a face-to-face conversation. So you can live out Romans 12, 18, which says, if possible, so far as it depends on me, live peaceably with all. So I know there's times in all of our lives when we ought to read our Bible, we ought to pray, we ought to serve, we ought to give, we ought to get in community, we ought to, ought to, ought to, ought to sing, we ought to show up to a gathering and be happy and we just don't feel it. We ought to worship, but we don't want to. So what do we do? When I don't want to worship, I recenter on the gospel. So let's take some time and do that this week and let's allow this to become a habit. That in those times, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, maybe we literally just return to Psalm 103 and remember this and we recenter on the gospel. Because man, when we remember who he is and what he's done, Worship is just going to flow. So Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for this ancient Old Testament psalm that screams your name, that screams the gospel. And I pray for myself and for all of those who are going to watch and listen to this, we would take that time 
to not try to muster up something in ourselves, to not fake it, but to just remember, recenter on who you are and what you've done on the gospel, and that our worship would naturally flow as a result of that. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. And it is in your holy, unrivaled name that we pray. Amen. Hi, thanks so much again for joining us today. My name is Mitchell. And I'm Todd. And we want to connect with you. Whether you've been watching online for a few months or years now, or this is your first time, we want to hear from you. You can go to publicchurch.com and click the Connect With Us tab and actually fill out an online Connect card. It's awesome. And you can also connect with us by either watching or showing up in person next week for Christmas Spectacular. <laughs> I'm so fired about this time. Most of Public Kids will be in the room, but we'll have Public Kids two and under upstairs. It is going to be incredible. Mitchell, what is your favorite part oh, of Spectacular? I love all the variety acts we do every year. Even Public Kids, they'll lead us in some Christmas songs, mm -hmm. and I love it. Our yep. Public Kids director does a wonderful job with that every year. And also also, you get to see Todd in a full, basically he's wrapped in Christmas <laughs> wrapping paper. I think it's a suit. I'm, I can't tell. We'll anymore. call it a suit. Okay, it's a suit. <laughs> the point being though, wear some Christmas attire. <laughs> yes. It can be tacky. It can be an awesome suit. An ugly sweater. Whatever, okay. <laughs> um, but it's gonna be awesome. And then on December 11th, for you ladies, Flourish is hosting an ornament swap. So it can be new, gently used, also bring a Christmas tree and your recipe to give to people. So Mitchell, suppose you were okay. invited to this Flourish event, what ornament would you bring? Oh. So I, I, you should say something that your mom, Sherry, hey Sherry, has given you. That, this is a good chance to impress your mom. Oh. I actually went to like a switchfoot ornament wow. that I got this past year, but mom, I still love you. We hang all the ornaments on the tree still. <laughs> let's, uh, let's keep moving. Let's all right, we're on. just going to keep going. <laughs> anyway, it's going to be incredible. But look, as you can tell, we love Christmas mm -hmm. and we find joy in the journey and love to laugh. That's a value. So Christmas is about Jesus and we're going to laugh and we're going to have a good time. Yes. So also, as we have a chance to give now, mm -hmm. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burden. So I'm going to lift Mitchell. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> But we have a local justice partner, Foundation House, and they just exude this verse. They come alongside women facing both unplanned and even unwanted pregnancies to help them both before birth and after birth, and our generosity fuels them. So know that your giving has an impact beyond us. So there's gonna be some ways to give on the screen. So take some time and give. And again, we wanna see you online or in person next week for Christmas Spectacular. Spectacular. Oh, we gotta say it all together at once. Together? Ready? Yes. Okay. Christmas Spectacular. We'll see you next week. <laughs>